This episode of the Real Ag Radio podcast is brought to you by the BC Centre for Agritech Innovation at Simon Fraser University. Are you ready to grow your farm business with cutting-edge technologies and innovative solutions? Our centre will drive you towards an advanced future. Get the investment, expertise and support you need to test and develop your products or ideas through our Agritech Development Program. Google SFU Agritech Innovation to learn more. It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Real Ag Radio and realagriculture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Welcome to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio 147, Sirius XM. Sean Haney, your host here on this Wednesday edition of the show. Thanks so much for making Real Ag Radio and Rural Radio 147 a big part of your workday. Also a big shout out to everybody listening out there on the Real Ag Radio podcast. Today is a special show because today's show is brought to you by APAS, the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. And we are at the APAS AGM in beautiful Regina, Saskatchewan. It is the, the provincial capital, I might add. And uh, we've got a lot of great stuff lined up here for today on the show. We're going to be talking to the president of APAS. It is Ian Boxall. We've had him on the show numerous times. We're going to talk about a new report that came out from APAS today. They've been discussing at the annual general meeting about tying commodity prices to what the price of food is and making sure the, the consumer really understands the full picture. We're also going to talk today about the impact of things like the carbon tax on producers across Saskatchewan and really across the country. I know we're going to dig a little bit into Bill C-234 that continues to not find any sort of path through the Senate with a whole bunch of stall tactics and things like that. We've also got a producer panel, a farmer panel here today, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. We always like to have producer panels and really, really hear from the grassroots. We've got Sarah Legui, Devin Walker, and Bill Probilski will be with us here today to talk about, like I mentioned, the carbon tax, what some of their intentions are for 2024. Is there a proper way that farmers should be compensated for their contribution to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, BRM, all of that, and a whole lot more? The audience here just got through the resolutions. They've been covering a lot of the, the big, heavy issues that this province is dealing with. There's one thing about agriculture, there's no shortage of variables in and out of our control that farmers are dealing with on a regular basis. Now, if you have any feedback on today's show, you can definitely send me an email. My email is shaney at realagriculture.com. You can follow us across all the different social media platforms, too many to mention at this point, or you can call the Real Ag Feedback line that is 855-776-6147. Well, unfortunately, I've been asking people for a week to supply some feedback on how the carbon tax it impacts their farm, and I, I didn't get through all the technical capabilities to be able to pl- play those clips here today on, on the program, but we're going to do that over, over the next week or so. And I, I will tell you this, resoundingly, producers send me emails, they left messages on the real ag feedback line, very concerned about the impact that the carbon tax has on our industry. And I, and I think one of the biggest issues is definitely uh, using the example of Bill C-234. And, and you know, if you haven't been keeping up to speed on Bill C-234, 
This is the bill that is the private member's bill that is sitting in the Senate. It is really, really stalled out, basically to give farmers an exemption on some of those grain tax activities where there is no substitute. Grain drying, big issue out east in Ontario. There obviously is grain drying out here as west, as, out west as well. Heat of your livestock barns for poultry operations, turkey, pork. Uh, these, are, these are big costs, and obviously they, they scale up uh, the bigger that the farm gets. 234 is really there to provide some sort of exemption, and there's a sunset clause on that, on that bill as well, and still it can't find its way through some of the nonsense that is happening in the Senate. And what I heard from a lot of the listeners, uh, the audience out there with Real Ag Radio across Canada, was really people you know, really being frustrated by the fact that it doesn't really seem like some of the, the, the calls for action or the, 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 the calls for you know, really a second look at this is really not being heard by, by the federal government. Of course, we've got the Conservative Party of Canada talking about axe the tax. So if there was to be an election, if you look at some of the polls today, there would be a switch in government. And so maybe this would be sort of a non-issue in a few years. Costs are, are, are still here in today's environment. As we look ahead to 2024, we know that there is definitely some concerns about compression margin on the farm. We've gone through a pretty good time period here. If you've gotten rain, I know there's a big caveat for that. Uh, there's a lot of areas in Saskatchewan that have really been in that major, major drought bias. Don't worry, I understand that. I live in southern Alberta. I can't remember the last time it actually rained. Uh, and we are brown, and I believe it's like 16 degrees today at, at home. Uh, we're just hoping for some snow. But we, we know this, uh, costs have gone up, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about machinery during the resolution period here. We know the markets have been a more in a, a much more of a bearish cycle and a tone down. So farmers are concerned about their margin going forward, and the carbon tax, obviously, and some of the costs with that are definitely included. So continue to send me your feedback, shaney at realagriculture.com. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to the president of APAS. He's here on the stage. It is Ian Boxall. He'll be with us when we come back. You're listening to Real Ag Radio, Rural Radio 147. It's now time to do a product spotlight with FCC Ag Expert. We're joined right now by Sarah Boychuk. Let's talk about the role that FCC Ag Expert plays in knowledge transfer amongst the generations on the farm. Mm -hmm. So a really good example of that is Actually, another kid that I've worked with over this last year, Maddie from Learning About Egg with Maddie. She is a fifth generation farmer. She's a grade five student and her family has been using Egg Expert and they have really used that as a tool to get every generation involved in the farm. So her grandpa, for example, went back and added data about their farm back to 1972. And that data is there for Maddie to use and learn from. So because Egg Expert is so simple, it's just a great opportunity to get the whole family involved and pass on those principles of farm management from one generation to the next. That's agexpert.ca. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio 147 Sirius XM. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are at the APAS meeting. We're in Regina, Saskatchewan. And right now we are joined by the president of APAS. It is Ian Boxall. Ian, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Ian, so uh, I know a lot of the people here in the crowd, they, they know you very, very well. But reintroduce yourself to our audience uh, across North America. 
I guess I, I farm up in the Tidal area, northeast Saskatchewan, a grain farmer up there, and have been involved with APAS for about nine years roughly, and actually love policy. I believe it's the thing that can keep farms going for generations if we have good policy. Yeah, were, did you always feel that way? Were you always so attracted? That, from, from the first moment that I got introduced to APAS, when our rep at the time came to the RM, when I got on RM Council, I knew I had to be involved from that moment on. Mm. Okay, so introduce everybody to, what is APAS? What, what is it? So APAS is Saskatchewan's only general farm organization that covers every commodity and every sector of agriculture, and we, we lobby government and lobby you know, officials on to ensure that policies are correct for the future of farming. So and representing not just like a crop, it's not a checkoff organization, it's a general nope. farm organization. So it's, it's the, the, your municipality voluntarily joins on behalf of the ratepayers in their municipality, and the room today is full of representatives from those member RMs. Okay, so at the beginning of the show here, I mentioned the carbon tax, and I've been asking, you know, and I heard from a number of Saskatchewan producers in regards, you know, when I think about uh, opponents of the carbon tax, I think... Uh, the, the, <laughs> Saskatchewan is really the root of the opposition, uh, I, would, I would probably say. Uh, Premier Mo definitely really leading that charge. Danielle Smith, Premier of Alberta, kind of falling in behind. Why, do you, why is there so much concern about the carbon tax when it comes to Saskatchewan and agriculture? I, th- I just think because... I just think here in the West, I'm not sure we believe it works. We don't have alternatives. We don't have the power sources to do what needs done, our landscape and the distances we need to travel. Let's go back. The carbon tax was put in place to change behavior. It might have in some areas. Has it worked? Are our emissions down? Has the intent of the tax actually done what it was intended to do? Or has it just because it, originally it was just a price on carbon? It was never, right? The government never called it a tax. But now it's become a tax because it hasn't done anything. It hasn't changed emissions. It hasn't changed behavior in the West because it can't because we don't have alternatives. So we're stuck with, you know, driving to town. We're stuck with all of that, right? I I have said often that I think one of the challenges here, when people hear that argument, is that they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So what you're saying is farmers aren't in support of doing things that are right for the environment. Because what's happened is, is in the mainstream narrative, the... The federal liberals have done a very good job of attaching. Like, if 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 you the the only way to solve this issue is to have a carbon tax. Those two things are very very connected. They're 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 inseparable, and so it, it creates it, it really prevents us from really having a a discussion about is there a better way. Right, and I think that's it. And I think farmers get that we don't care, but what they need to understand is we care more than we get credit for. We're at the forefront of climate change, right? We, you know, we care about our land, we care about the environment, more than anyone gives us credit for. I'm, I'm with you, I think there is a d- different way to, to achieve our environmental targets without it being a tax that directly affects everyone in this room's bottom line. So what I think was in one of the resolutions was uh, making sure that farmers get recognized for some of the contributions that they have made. Um, we, we've got a lot of focus on the go forward, but there always is this stumbling block of, well, wait a minute here, I converted to zero till, or I have you know, been doing advanced grazing for years. Um, the, trying to recognize the past in a, in, a, in a time where we're trying to look forward is, is, is kind of complicated. Oh, for sure it is. And I think, you know, I've, I've said to people in Ottawa lots, you guys are 30 years behind us in the West. We did this 30 years ago because we knew there was an issue. We went to zero till. We made the, made the changes because that's what was best for our farm. And the, now the government wants to tax us for, you know, and, and do, 
taxes for what we're doing now, but yet they're 30 years behind because we did this 30 years ago. So some recognition, even just a verbal recognition that what we do is okay. Like, I just want them to acknowledge that, hey, you guys are doing a pretty good job. Do, do you think, though, that it just doesn't stop? Like, okay, so yes, we, we, we've converted very, you know, re, I think pretty quickly and astoundingly to zero till because people saw a benefit. They saw an ROI. They saw, like, this actually agronomically works, not just trapped in some sort of ideological narrative. It just doesn't stop there. We can always continue to improve and, and get better. We're not saying, yeah, like, we did our thing, leave us alone now. No, absolutely not, because I think, you know, zero tilth, you know, 30 years ago, some people implemented it. Now we're in section control and variable rate and adoption of, you know, pinpoint accuracy when it comes to your spraying. So we are doing more with less. We're growing better crops with less water based off how we farm now. You look at the year we had this year, there's no reason for Saskatchewan to have produced the bushels it produced with the rainfall it had. No, no kidding. And that is, I attribute that to two things. I attribute that to, the, to our practices and to, to plant breeding and research. That's what caused us, was able to make us grow the crops we grew this year with the limited rain we had. Yeah, uh, Thursdays on the show we do the Farmer Rapid Fire. You've participated in that before. Uh, so has Devin Walker, who will be up here uh, later, and uh, Sarah has as well. You know, one of the things that, uh, there was about a, a month there was sort of like uncomfortable question where we would talk to a producer in Saskatchewan and they would say, yeah, my yields, they were a little bit better than I thought they were going to be. And I, would, I would always make the joke that everybody wanted to, ha- always wants to hammer on stats can, how they can't you know, predict anything. But there's a lot of farmers that are really surprised about their yields here in 2023 based on that rainfall, like you said. Yeah, I was on my farm shocked, actually, with the yields we had with the rain, for no rain in July, right? Yeah. Just, it's hard to do that two years in a row. We, we need some more rain. We do, and some snow. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, uh, I want to hit on the report. Kevin Greer was here, I think, earlier um, talking about the report that uh, APAS commissioned in regards to looking at what farmers are paid for commodities. I think it was eight commodities you picked out and, and how that those prices in relation to the escalation of food prices. Uh, why did you commission that report? So this came out of a resolution at our AGM a couple years ago when, when we started to see commodity prices go up and the price of food go up at the store shelf. There were consumers that were blaming it on farmers were making the money, right? That it was strictly because of the commodity prices. So there was a resolution brought forward that passed at our AGM for us to do this study and we finally got it prepped and ready to go out and yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there. So what do you think the reaction is going to be? Because uh, uh, there's two kind of audiences here. There's probably farmers saying, yeah, I, I, I told you so. And, but I'm kind of also interested in what do you think some of the consumer reactions will be? Well, I, 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 it's an education piece is how I see it, right? I see it, we can educate the, the public um, on what actually is the farmer's share of, of what they buy at the grocery store shelf on these eight products. But then I think it also gives the consumer the ability now to ask the question is, well, where's the rest? Like, where is the rest of my money going? Who gets the rest? Who in the supply chain gets the rest of my grocery dollar? I think they can ask those questions. We've done it at the farm gate. Now let, let, let's let the other sectors do their share and lay it out there so everyone, so there's transparency in what the groceries are costing and where the money goes. Yeah, so what did you find? You found that the, even with the increase in the price of commodities, food prices actually like jumped even higher. Right, the inflation, the food inflation was... There was no direct correlation between the increased increase price of commodities and the increased price of groceries. You did, was there any conclusion on where is that money going? No, I think this is just one, one link in the supply chain. We've looked at the farmer's share, 
now, right, there'll be manufacturing. There's trans probably, I don't know, there'll be five or six transportations by the time it gets to the grocery store, right? And so there's all those chains and, the, you know, and the, what's the grocer making? And I understand that all of those links need to have a profit or they're not in business, but is there any gouging or is this just what it costs? So right? it's interesting because the House Ag Committee, they reviewed grocery prices because grocery prices have taken up a lot of oxygen in, in Ottawa it was pretty clear that there wasn't gouging. So it's, if it's not happening at the grocery level, it's not happening at the farmer level, it's somewhere in the middle. Is it a case of there's some one of, you know, there's a stakeholder in the middle that's making all the money, or is there just too many stakeholders in the middle? I, maybe there's just too many stakeholders in the middle, right? And, and I think back to what we're going to talk about here again today on your show with the producer panel, carbon tax. Every time that's freighted and every time something happens to it, there's a carbon tax associated to that cost of food as well. So it has to be driving the price up as well. Yeah. What, what are some of the other issues that uh, APAS is working on right now that are really... Uh, the, the Grain Act came up. Uh, it seems like that's kind of lost some political will, some political steam right now. It's, it feels like we've been sort of working on that for, well, quite frankly, ever. Yeah, it has been forever. And I, I, the funny thing about the Grain Act that, you know, there's submissions have been going in and we've submitted a, you know, a couple of times into the Grains Act review and then I heard from government, government officials two weeks ago that it's pretty much done, that they're just waiting to put the new regulations forward to the, out to the House to be voted on. So there's some confusion around where the Grain Act review is at. So I think that's something we need to get clarity on and is there still ability for us to, you know, submit our ideas and where we see this going. So... We need to clarify that, and you know, BRMs will always be an issue for producers. But uh, you know, transportation—it's always some major issues that we'll continue to work with for producers. The, the other thing that came up in the er, earlier today was the Bungie Viterra uh, acquisition, um, and not to say that you know, definitely clearly from some of the discussion, APAS definitely doesn't have an opinion on that merger one way or the other, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but more, you're, you want the government to actually like spend more time looking at some of the impacts uh, if this was to go through. Is that correct? Well, Saskatchewan's going to be the most effective. So we have asked, you know, us in the commodity groups in the province have asked the government to do a big dive into how this will affect producers, port, transportation, all of those things, you know, if this merger goes ahead. And, the, and the, part of the underlying factor that isn't talked about much and is kind of somewhat discounted even in our meetings is, you know, is Bungie's 25% stake in G3. Right. All of a sudden that changes. It isn't just Bungie Viterra merging. Now there's a 25% stake in another elevator company and it's, we're seeing it in every aspect of agriculture and I'm not sure that the producers are at the forefront of those decisions. You know, some of the most important stuff that happens at a meeting happens in the hallway or the pub at night. And I, I know some people had some pints last night, which I would uh, very, very much expect. I'd be disappointed if they didn't. Um, what, what, as you've been talking to people, the membership that's here today, what's kind of the sentiment and the outlook leading into to 2024? What's your sense there? So I think, I think we've had a few good years. You mentioned it earlier. We've had some good years in agriculture. So it, it's been positive. I think the biggest fear moving forward is drought. I really do. I think as we look outside today and lack of snow and how a lot of the province was hit this year with lack of rainfall, I think that is, you know, drought and then just our overall costs, input costs and the cost of equipment and the cost of parts and availability of all that, st all that stuff. Those, I would say, are two at the forefront of producers' minds. The cost of labor, too. That, that's cost another one. Availability of labor, all those things. But I, I would say the costs and, and then just the ongoing drought that we've seen across the province. 
Yeah, definitely need some rain. There's, uh, there's no doubt about that uh, at all. Hey, really appreciate joining us here, Ian. All the best to you, and thanks for having Real Ag Radio here at the APAS AGM. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to bring up our farmer panel, and we're going to dig into a whole bunch of issues here. You're listening to Real Ag Radio, World Radio 147, Sirius XM. <laughs> growing storm of kosher, cleavers, chickweed, and more, there's a clear path. Introducing Oxbow, a versatile cereal broadleaf herbicide that gets the job done. Powered by Duplisan technology, Oxbow is your workhorse on resistant kosher and other tough weeds. With flexibility in timing, rates, and recropping options, your path is clear. Find your way on the path of least resistance at newfarm.ca slash oxbow. Peter Johnson at wheatpeatrealagriculture.com. I'm the host of The Word, and I love doing The Word. I love the questions. I love the challenges. I love having to apply agronomics to all over the globe and areas outside of my normal jurisdiction. Also, I love the feedback the most where growers challenge me Tell me about their plot results. Help me to learn. The Word, absolutely the best part of my day. And welcome back to Real Ag Radio, broadcasting here from the APAS meeting in Regina, Saskatchewan. It is great to be here. We just heard from Ian Boxhall, president of APAS. And now we're going to get into the farmer panel, which we love to do here on Real Ag Radio. Uh, of course, we have the farmer rapid fire coming up uh, tomorrow on the show. So you're going to get a lot of farmer here this week on the show. Okay, uh, let's dig in here. Up first, it is Sarah Legui. Sarah, good to see you again. Yep, great to be back. <laughs> <laughs> she says. Okay, so Sarah, uh, tell us about your farm. Uh, so I farm with my dad and my brother and brother-in-law, uh, just around Weyburn, so southeast Saskatchewan. Uh, grain and oil seeds from about 16,000 acres. Uh, yeah, just tra- busy trucking right now and getting fertilizer in and yeah. all that fun stuff. It, it, being in Weyburn, there's a lot of oil and gas activity around that area. It has got to be immensely challenging trying to get labor in that area. Yeah, we have actually gone through two different guys this past year. Um, we have, luckily, we have two really good full-time guys that we do our best to hold on to at like any cost. And we have another guy who's retired, but I just got a message from him saying that the 4850 is ready to go to the shop. So he's bored and comes and helps us a lot. So it's really nice because. I don't know. It's just a constant struggle. And we do need more people. And we've actually been reaching out um, to Ukraine. Yep. Trying and get some families over from there because the, the local market seems to just be a struggle. Yeah. Mate, yeah. I, I can identify being from uh, Alberta for sure. That's the same sort of act, or issues when you're, you know, the good, we want to see the energy sector, or sector succeed. But obviously we're in the same battle for the same kind of labor indeed. Also, uh, we've got here, I think also the vice president of APAS. It is Bill Probilski. Is that how I say that, Bill? Yeah, right on. Perfect. Okay, so tell us about your farm. So I farm with uh, some family members, my brother, my son, and a couple nephews, East Central Saskatchewan, just west of Yorkton. Uh, We farm on 15,000 acres, growing grains, oil seeds, and pulse crops, and we run a a 200-head commercial cow-calf operation. Still in the cow-calf? I like to hear it. 
yeah, it's it's <laughs> it, it's finally uh, paying some of the bills now. But uh, I've always looked at cattle as kind of a necessary evil on our farm, just because we have enough marginal land that uh, can't grow crops on. So the the, the cattle are an excellent fit for that marginal land. Yeah, it, I almost wonder at times if we're going to see like. There's reasons that it's not going to happen, a drought being one of them, but we're seeing a lot, when we're talking about the production system, we're hearing a lot more about incorporating grazing even into cropping. We, it may become a little bit more in vogue again, because like, we've seen so much of the cow herd really stemming from BSE, really a huge reduction in, in Western Canada. The U.S. has faced the same thing for different reasons, but the drought has really impacted our ability to expand the cow herd going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I know, you know, here in Saskatchewan, we've lost over a hundred thousand head in the last four years. So we know that the livestock industry has struggled in the in the past. But you know, maybe maybe we've turned that corner. Maybe the the guys that are left in the industry are are in it for all the right reasons and are finally recognizing some some black ink on their farms because of the, you know improved cattle prices and and uh, you know uh, the just the idea that that cattle are, are important and, and hopefully the livestock industry is getting recognized for the contributions to, to um, you know, carbon sequestration and, yep. and the, the protein. The world needs protein. So. Let's be honest. Nothing says fun like calving in February. Yep, been there. <laughs> also joining us from Lashburn, Saskatchewan, it is Devin Walker. Devin, great to see you again. Hi, Sean. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, inviting you. And it's interesting, you know, I, I sent an email to the panel and said, you know, here's some of the things we're going to chat about. And in typical Devin fashion, you sent me a long... I, I've sort of thought about this... A li- you used the word little. And then you sent me this long, long email. I love it. That's, that's uh, right on brand for you. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your farm. Uh, so I farm uh, up near Lloydminster, northwest Saskatchewan, right along Highway 16. So it's... Uh, energy pocket of Saskatchewan also. Uh, My wife and I run a family farm that's much smaller than the two folks sitting up here with me, but uh, it is does keep us busy and we're kind of spread out a little bit, so we're doing that and most of the folks that help us on the farm are a relative or quasi-relative or somebody who's fortunate enough to be a neighbor of ours down the road and we lean on them, so uh, we're, we're, we're lucky. And you came back to the farm? Yes, so before uh, I did a stint uh, in environmental in the environmental sector all through Alberta, from south of Hinton, Alberta, working open pit coal mines and doing reclamation and cleanup and animal management, to environmental cleanup pipelines, spills, oil and gas around Lloydminster when I first came back, and then, yeah, 10 years ago, hung up my, my, my reflective <laughs> coveralls and haven't looked back since, so lucky, yeah. lucky to do that. I'm glad you clarified. Uh, I spent some time in the environmental sector, like you were an activist or something, and you parked it. No, well, I'm the, glad you clarified that's that. That's how they train you at first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of the environmental sciences stuff uh, is agriculture sciences brushed over into, into the environmental space. Yeah. So. Okay, we'll tell you what. Now that we've uh, introduced our panelists, we're going to take a very, very quick break, and we're going to get into a bunch of issues when we come back. You're listening to Real Lag Radio here on Roll Radio 147, Sirius XM, brought to you by APAS. What's next for your fields? At Pioneer, delivering industry-leading genetics drives everything we do. From the scientists in the lab, 
to our local teams with boots on the ground. We are determined to get there first. Developing top-performing products, proven in more growing conditions than ever before. Pioneer. What's next happens here. Visit pioneer.com slash Canada to learn more. Joining me now for today's product spotlight is Chris Turco. He's the CEO of FP Genetics. What sets your company apart from other Western Canada seed companies? Uh, I think what sets us apart really is our people. Uh, we're a privately held company uh, that is owned by over 170 farmers in Western Canada. Uh, it happens to be farmers that have a shared passion for new varieties, a shared passion for evaluating varieties on their farm, choosing the best genetics for their farm, and, it, and they happen to love producing seed and, and offering those varieties to their neighbors and their community. And then our staff, most of our staff is kind of uh, mid-career and they've been, been involved in seed from day one. Uh, right from our R&D group where we, where we are evaluating varieties on a regional level for farmers, right through to our sales team, like I said, where half of them are, are still on the farm. All right. There is, uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff out there and some big decisions to make for there 2024. Is. So always nice to have good options and always great to have you on the show, Chris. Thank you very much, Timothy. And welcome back to Real Ag Radio, Rural Radio 147, Sirius XM. Uh, Sean Haney here at the APAS meeting in Regina, Saskatchewan. What, what is this, the Emerald City? Is that what we call it? Is that, is that, is that the nickname, audience? Queen. The Queen City. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, boy. Yeah. There's another joke I'll tell. We'll stay away from that. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep going here. Let's get back to the issues. And uh, we're going to talk right now about the carbon tax. And Devin, I want to start with you. The, how, how do you see the carbon tax relative to the impact on your farm? What, what's your position on this? So I guess my, my position on this is it's played out almost exactly how all of us in the farming sector thought it would. How so? It is supposed to be a consumer tax, which we're producers, but we have to pay a tax on on all the things we need to produce. So it becomes like an escalator tax for all the consumables that we use on our farm. And, and we're a long way from port, and a lot of our products come from around the world, and we can't control how they're produced, we can't control how they're shipped, we can't control all these things, but at the end of the day, we still have to pay a carbon tax in order to produce food. So... Um, my discontent is the fact that the, the experts or the, the regulators or the, the government of the day somewhat ignored the agriculture voice before the taxes were mm. put in and now we're kind of stuck here going, see, we told you so and here's now data. Why? So I feel that we're cresting that that hump and I think that now the, the federal government hears that and sees that and the, there's proof. Do you, do you think, sir? Do you think it's resonating at the federal level? Because I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure it is. But what do you think? I think that it's probably. We like to think that it is, but I don't know how deep that reson or that like understanding is in the government. But I think now that we've gone through it this long and the price has gone up enough that now more consumers are starting to see it. And before they they saw it and they saw their rebate and that was. That was great. Oh, we get a check. But now they're starting to see it in their pocketbook because they can't 
they can't get around it. Like it was avoidable before, but now it's hitting everybody. So the more people outside of the egg industry that start to notice it and get hit hard where it counts, where their money comes from, that's where I think that we're going to maybe see a bit more change because it seems like we're, yeah, we do get largely ignored. Yeah. But. Well, and, and I think on top of that, Bill, you know, I, I mentioned C234 at the beginning. Even, you know, if that does, and be, I had a conversation with an Ottawa insider this morning who said that eventually this is going to pass. It's just a question of, of when. But even if it does, you know, based on what De- Devin and Sarah have said, it really it, it doesn't eliminate the impact that the carbon tax has on us because think about trucking, for example, where you know the, there's escalation of costs. That's just one example all the way through the chain. We're 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 still going to be facing this. Yeah, absolutely. In everything we do, everything that's trucked into our farm and everything that we truck off of our farm, and I think it's been estimated the the carbon tax on rail freight is something like forty million dollars to producers here. We have no other alternative but to put our grain on, on rail to get it to the coast. So 40 million. I believe that's the number. Wow. Yeah, so um, I don't... It, it, it kind of in, in answer or to follow up on what Devin had said uh, in terms of the, the federal government, it's been our experience that a lot of the, a lot of the people that are making the decisions that affect producers here in the province don't really understand agriculture in the province and how the the things like the carbon tax and other other policies how it affects producers and 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 it, it is concerning so Devin, what are some of the things that you think agriculture can do because like uh, there's uh, we know we're we know the industry in general is against the carbon tax but are, are there things that the industry can do to assist and be a part of the solution, not like the solution, because that's like maybe overstepping our capabilities, but be a part of the solution. So I feel that our industry, you know, we are adaptable. We do have a lot of choices that we can make uh, in a situation of a carbon tax that is continually rising. you know, take the average farm, maybe you could uh, do things like reduce idle time or you buy a more efficient tractor or, or something to that effect. Uh, you can only trim so much fat and at the end of the day you still rely on carbon to produce food and and we are producing more food units per unit of carbon all the time through plant breeding and choices in crops and 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 field management and agrology so one is we're producing more units of food per unit of carbon two we do I don't consider agriculture a wasteful space. Uh, most of us are always fearful of that next trouble on the horizon, so we're trying to conserve everything that we can and not spend our money and not waste our resources as we're going. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can maybe trim 10% of your carbon use in your machines or something like that. Uh, don't quote me on that percentage. But three years down the road, the cost you're paying for that essential unit of carbon, the tax on it, is getting doubled and then it's getting tripled. So you can only do so much. And I feel for our non-farming uh, Canadians who are you know, wage earners or, or people in an urban situation who can, they, they've, they've reduced. They said, we're going to only drive our car half as much. But then once they've done that, they've cut all they can. But the tax on what that essential use just keeps going up and up and up and penalizing people. So there's an incentive in the short term, but in long term, 
what, what are we supposed to do? There's no technology to, to fill that energy gap that agriculture needs. Well, and a lot of them, though, have been sold on the fact that, hey, this is going to be great because you're going to get a check in the mail, which always has felt like sort of like a, maybe people being bought off in some way, Sarah. Yeah, and I guess that, like I said before, it went that went a long way at the beginning because it's like that you know, a little carrot and seems really good. But then when you go through it long enough and that money, you realize that that money doesn't even nearly cover the cost. And the problem with the, the, the whole thing is that there's so many hidden costs, you know, like what, like Bill and Devin and one Ian had touched on too about like, okay, I don't know or I don't get to control how my fertilizer is made, but I need it to grow a crop. I got to get chemical trucked in or fertilizer trucked in and all that stuff. We're paying extra money on that. We can't control our commodity prices. So we have no way to pass that cost on to somebody else, like the railroads and like the resolution earlier. Railroads can pass that cost off onto us. We can't pass it off onto the consumer. So the, a, a small check really doesn't go very far when, when the cost is attached to everything that we do pretty much. And it's a hidden yeah. cost a lot of the times because we don't see the numbers until you really dig into it. So Once, once in a while, I'll get a, we were talking about the carbon tax, I'll get an email from a listener in Montana or Oregon or Alabama or wherever in the U.S. like, you Canadians are crazy. <laughs> you, you, you mean that like... You, 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 you pay for fuel, uh, like with a trucking company, or you get the railway to haul your grain, and there's like a line item that says, like, X tax, and you have to pay that in the name of trying to reduce emissions? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Y'all are crazy! Like, that, that's the reaction I, I, I get a long time, or a lot of the time. So, Bill, uh, there are, you know, there's also a lot of focus on reducing the carbon intensity of our fuel. We've got the clean fuel regulation, uh, which there's a lot of components. It's very, very complex legislation. We don't need to get all the nuts and bolts of it. But there is uh, a component of that that is very much about biofuels. We're seeing a huge investment, in particular in Saskatchewan, Based on the, the regulation of, of saying, you know, trying to you know, lower the carbon intensity of fuel. So there is, some of the environmental movement is showing also some positives for agriculture, too, if, if you are pro-biofuel. Now, if you're not pro-biofuel, that's a whole other discussion. But there's a real opportunity and investment in Saskatchewan here when it comes to biofuels based on renewable diesel. Um, what's your position on that? It's, it's, it's really a mixed blessing. Um, anytime we can create or, or somebody can create a further demand for what we produce on our farms, that's, that's good news. If they're using X number more bushels to produce, produce uh, biodiesel, you know, that's, that's just going to create more demand for our canola and, and hopefully uh, you know, support the canola market. On the other hand, as a, as a producer, and we have to, have to abide by rules that that are going to make the the fuel that we need on our farms to do the things that we do. If it's going to make that more expensive, it's it's just another cost that we're uh, we're as Sarah said we can't pass that on to to uh, to the consumers yeah. because we we are price takers. So anything that increases our cost is is not good. But on the other side, if if it increases the demand for our products, that's uh, that's a net benefit. So yeah, kind of a mixed blessing. Yeah, Sarah, how do you feel about biofuels? Do you have a position? Do you have a thought on that? Uh, I don't. I, I'm not going to say it's self-explanatory, Jeremy. Uh, but I think I agree with Bill. Like, it, the the more demand is great, but at the same time, like, 
also, I guess it kind of raises the, f- uh, can maybe affect your feed prices too. Like we don't have cattle anymore, but still see, there's always like, uh, good for here, not so good for here. So I, I'm still kind of on the fence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so one of the, think about it from, uh, when the, uh, RFS passed in the U S there was a lot of concern from the live, there's a lot of concern from the livestock industry in terms of the price of feed. But one of the benefits too has the side benefits has been all the DDGs in the market and how much that, you know, they've been incorporated more into the feed rations as well. There's going to be an issue Canada has to deal with. And there's lots of really, really smart people with a lot of very fancy titles in their name, trying to sort out what to do with all the canola meal that all of a sudden we're going to have is all of a sudden we're not going to be, exporting or being reliant on exporting as much canola to Japan or China, but it's going to be more of an issue, what the heck do we do with all this meal? Uh, the U.S. dairy industry can only take so much, Devin. Yeah, so my thought on the biofuels, um, there is this argument of uh, you're using food for energy, you're using food for fuel, and so that's kind of t- touched on. And I think that argument now is, is null and void when you see solar panels going on productive grazing farmland and cropland. So there is uh, food space being taken up by green energy solar panels. Yeah. So I feel that's, uh, that's a wash argument with the food versus fuel. And then for myself up in the northwest part of the province, uh, we do have an ADM crusher. And off-spec canola, frozen green canola, that can go to a biodiesel stream more so than a food grade. Early frost years when we have low test weight wheat and hard red wheat that would normally go to a food outlet you know, for human food consumption, uh, on those years when you have rough spec grain or it's snowed on, an ethanol plant is a really good sales outlet for yeah. that product. And, and I'd, our farm would have fallen on its face in a few of these early snow harvest years if those two uh, biofuel outlets were not near me. Um, so that, that, that was kind of a saving grace for us and on some of those years. So the climate kicks us while we're trying to make climate-friendly fuels, and it just becomes this theoretical tail chase. <laughs> There's a, definitely different ways to look at uh, that topic indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. We've got one more segment coming up here on Real Ag Radio. You're listening to Rural Radio 147 Sirius XM at the APAS AGM in Regina. Now we'll be joined by Heather Watson, Executive Director with Farm Management Canada. Give us an update. What are some of the things that Farm Management Canada is up to? What are some of the things you're doing right now to move the needle? Yeah, so we're doing a combination of, I would say, research and education and connection in the industry. Um, so on the research side, we've just um, launched the results of our farm women study, which is super mm. exciting, some really interesting insights that we'll discuss. Uh, and on the education and training, of course, you mentioned this conference. We have workshops in financial literacy. We have workshops in um, bridging that Bridging the Gap with Farm Transition, um, as well as some interesting kind of risk management activities. How do we look at what's happening in the changing business environment? How do we take a proactive approach? And what are all the connections we can make to the various aspects of business management? So it's a bit of a step-by-step, elephant one bite at a time approach. Keep up the great work at Farm Management Canada, and thank you so much. I get to spend every day talking to farmers in the ag industry through realagriculture.com and Real Ag Radio. But nothing is more fun than speaking to an audience live and in person. If you're planning an ag event, 
Book a real agriculture speaker to make it a successful and memorable experience. Email shaney at realagriculture.com and you can book myself or any other real ag personality to speak at your event. Bring your audience all the fun, insight, and energy of real agriculture. And yeah, welcome back to Real Ag Radio. We got a producer panel here at the APAS AGM in Regina, Saskatchewan. We're talking to Sarah Legui, Devin Walker, and Bill Probilski. We've been really kind of focusing on some of the environmental issues, uh, mainly centered around the carbon tax. I'm interested, Bill, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but uh, I will, because uh, you're the vice president um, of APAS. There was a discussion earlier about sustainable lending. Um, this is an interesting one because uh, it feels like sort of the horses are out of the barn. This is one that financial institutions, I know it's been a bit, I think there was actually a finance section of COP28 uh, yesterday, like a whole day on finance. Um, as a producer, a farmer, do you think there's opportunities in sustainable lending or do you see it as a disadvantage? How do you, how do you view it? I, I personally think there is a, a strong disadvantage to it in that if, if, uh, if at any time anything is tied to environmental regulations or, or sustainability or any of those things that, that uh, you know, for the most part we're doing anyways on our farms, but just, just tying those things together is, is to me very problematic. We we base our decisions on our farms based on what's best for our farms, which often includes what's best for the environment. And, and um, you know, sustainability is, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a strange word to start with, because what exactly does that mean? You know, I, I think about my farm, my, my great-grandfather homesteaded in, in like 1897, so we've been farming the same land for a few years. Is that not in itself a definition of sustainability? So, to, to tie anything to those kinds of parameters, I think, is very problematic. Devin, do you see opportunity? Like, if, if the bank came to you and said, listen, um, don't cut it down a line of trees, um, practice zero-till in, in, in most cases when you, when you can, uh, we're going to give you, I don't know, a quarter percentage off your rate. Is that something you would sign up for? It sounds attractive at first, uh, but I think... Who's, who's setting that, those standards? The, well, in this case, I, I'm making up an example. Uh, the bank. So the bank is. And the bank's driven by shareholders or board of directors or something. So there's, there's people somewhere far away from my farm, outside of my climate region, outside of my biome, outside of my province, who says, you shall not do this with your tractor. You shall not do this with your trees. And that becomes a problem because who to better manage their their farm or land is the people who are living on it and depending on it. So uh, I feel that in this greenwashing and in this green space, you, the goalposts would move so fast. They'd move with a government. They'd move with a change of a minister. They'd move with the public opinion of shareholder groups or uh, an investment firm. And all of a sudden, whoop, that lending institution now no longer accepts that crop as sustainable. So you cannot grow that entire crop. Yeah. So those goalposts to me are not cemented in, whereas I like to deal with a lending institution where their goalposts are two plus two is four. This is your interest rate or percentage. Math, you can't 
argue that, but sustainability metrics seem to be hard to define and always changing. Yeah, have you run into this at all, Sarah? Have, have you seen any issues with sustainable lending at all? No, that uh, that's not like a very common word, like association for me, I guess. Yep. But I would totally agree with Devin. Like, we have enough regulation and enough people telling us what we should be doing on our farms. I don't really want somebody at the bank that's giving me money telling me that as well. So. <laughs> the, the bank tells you enough stuff already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and when we talk about, you know, telling the industry how to do certain things, was we went through the fertilizer emission reduction last year. Now, since, you know, all the hoopla and discussion in the fall of 22, in the spring of 23, I was at the meeting, uh, the CFA meeting, actually, where the prime minister was there and he said, you know, very clearly, this, w- this is going to be an aspirational, a voluntary uh, situation. I'm still, I still run to lots of producers that don't believe that he actually means that. I know in the sustainable ag strategy, you know, this continues to be a bit of a roadblock, even as an aspirational goal. And I think a lot of farmers push back because they're like, you know, I, I don't want to use more fertilizer. Like I'll use fertilizer if I need to, but I'm not like just willy nilly, like a recreational fertilizer spreader because it's awesome. And it's, it's how I get my utility in life is by using as much fertilizer as I possibly can at 900 bucks a ton or whatever the heck it is at any sort of given moment or more. Yeah. And I think like there's, there's too many problems to even like get into the whole fertilizer thing, but like right off the bat, I honestly think the government thought that all farmers just spread 100% of their fertilizer and, it, and 100% of it gasses off. Like, it just seems like there was just so little thought put into it. And even the paper they came out with at the beginning had a, a lot of, like, false information in it. So when you start off with it like that, then how do you, like, where do you go from there? It's really hard to, you know, take a stand when you're already starting from the bottom. And, like, my brother, Jake, writes a blog, and he wrote a piece called about, like, don't tell farmers how to farm, ask them how to farm. There are a lot of smart producers in this room alone, let alone, like, in the prairies and in Canada, that they don't need to be coddled and babied. Like, we're not, exactly like you said, we're not just flogging the fertilizer on. If you're doing, if you're putting your fertilizer down properly in the right form and at the right time, you're trying to mitigate your costs. Like, it's not cheap. We're not just recreational, yeah, tillage and recreational spreading and doing that kind of stuff. But it's hard to convey that to people who don't understand agriculture. Yeah, no, Devin, do you think there should be more incentives in place for producers to engage in certain practices? I'll give you, I'll give you an example that I ran into at Agritechnica in Germany. Uh, Tom Wolf from Saskatoon, uh, everybody knows him very well, the sprayer expert from Sprayers 101. Tom talked about how right now in Germany there's a subsidy program where if you buy like the top environmental sprayer, top notch, it's got all the bells and whistles when it comes to drift management and application and all this kind of stuff, you get 40% of that sprayer cost back. 40 right? That's an incentive. Who's not buying a sprayer? Sprayer sales are way up in uh, Germany. Um, that seems like a crazy incentive, but is, is, are there incentives that should be in place to entice farmers to take up certain practices? I, I'm not a big fan of, of the incentives because usually within agriculture, when we come across technology that's working and it's going to be good for our farm, the incentive is in 
the action or the return that it gives us as a producer. Like it, the incentive is in the ability to get better fertilizer usage or spray usage or, and so on. So that's the incentive on its own, I feel. And I also feel that in Canada, we don't have enough population to be paying incentives towards farmers. Like there's, we, we have vast amounts of space. Canada probably has 40 times more sprayers than Germany. Germany has 40 times more non-farming taxpayers than Canada. So it, 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 it's tough to compare us to, to anywhere in the EU, really. Um, so I, I'm not a huge fan of the incentives. Uh, I would rather see incentives on some of our already gov- government-administered programs, uh, like crop insurance and things. If, right. if, you were, if you were following technology that's already out there, that's already proven, then maybe you're classed as less of a risk for some of our BRMs or something to that effect. Yeah, because it kind of is a bit of a carrot and stick bill, right? So the carbon tax is the stick. You know, you shall not do this, and we're going to hit you with the stick. Um, Hopefully not a really stiff, hard stick. We're going to hit you with a stick, though, so that you don't do this. Uh, An incentive is a carrot trying to pull more people to do certain things. How do you feel about incentives when it comes to agricultural practices? Theoretically, I like the idea of incentives, particularly as opposed to opposed to the taxation and the, the carrot stick idea. The problem that exists now is that, you know, as, as Ian mentioned here in Saskatchewan, we're probably 30 years ahead of a lot of the rest of the country. So we've adopted those practices already: the, the zero till, the um, variable rate for till fertilizers, all those types of things that we've been doing on our farms for years. And and to you know we've we've made those investments we've paid the the high cost for those pieces of implements and if now if there's an incentive for the rest of the producers that that aren't doing those things if there's incentives for them to adopt the practices that we've been doing for years you know is is, is that fair um, uh, maybe it is but but I think there's there's maybe op- that's maybe opening up a can of worms that maybe we don't want to. Yeah, well, it's a can of worms. We're getting closer to spring. It could be time to go fishing. So, hey, really, really appreciate our, our panel here. So Bill, Sarah, and Devin. And this has been a lot of fun, taking the APAS AGM to agriculture across North America. We really do appreciate APAS having us here today. And uh, we're going to wrap up here, and then we're going to get into some uh, reception and some beer. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you, everybody, for getting real and getting connected with Real Ag Radio. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Real Ag Radio podcast, brought to you by the BC Centre for Agritech Innovation at Simon Fraser University, your go-to for advancing agritech. Ready to elevate your farm business? Achieve the productivity and profitability you're looking for with Agritech Development Program. Google SFU Agritech Innovation to learn more.